Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Hi, and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. I am very excited about my interview today with Dr. Sarah McKay. But before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all you listeners out there for continuing to tune in to giving me feedback on the podcast, for writing awesome reviews, as well as subscribing you can follow us on social media at Woman Warriors on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Sarah McKay, who sums up her research in the words nature, nurture, and neuroplasticity. Sarah is a neuroscientist and science communicator who specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well-being. As the director of the Neuroscience Academy, Sarah offers training in applied neuroscience and brain health for helping professionals. She's authored the popular book, The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness which explores women's health from womb to tomb through the lens of neurobiology. In 2019, she hosted an episode of ABC's flagship science TV show, Catalyst, exploring biohacking, brain health, and longevity. In 2020, Sarah will take part in Homeward Bound, a Women in STEM Leadership Expedition to Antarctica. Sarah grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand, and after completing her neuroscience degree at Otago University, she won a scholarship to Oxford University for her PhD training. After five years of medical research in Sydney, Australia, Sarah hung up her lab coat to build an online science communications business. She combines a wry sense of humor with an uncompromising mind. Whether she is writing or speaking on the TEDx stage, she tells science stories in a fun and compelling way. She's been featured in print media, such as the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and Sydney Morning Herald, and she can be seen or heard on SBS Insight, ABC Radio National, ABC Catalyst, and Channel 7 Mornings in Australia. Sarah lives on the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia with her Irish husband. Together, they're raising two boys and a cocker spaniel, and they can be found sailing, surfing, mountain biking, or skiing. Today, we're going to talk to Sarah about her book, The Woman's Brain Book, the Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, 
So I'm very excited about this topic because it feels as if the research, either there isn't a ton out there or it's very contradictory and I want to pick her brain about women's health. So she is clearly a woman warrior and she is doing some great stuff out there in the world. So let's get started. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I love your podcast. You do really important work. So I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And it's interesting because for such a long time, I have wanted to find someone who could talk to me about yeah, how our brain and body work and like why women's brains do what they do. I mean, why our body, female bodies do what they do. So I'm very excited about our conversation. But before we get started, mm-hmm. I just want to, hoping you will talk a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to do this work and to write this book. Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, I live, <clears throat> excuse me, I live in Sydney, Australia, but I'm actually a New Zealander. So I grew up in in New Zealand, which I think has um, gained a bit of recognition recently because we have a really fantastic Prime Minister and she's done a lot for putting Kiwi women on the, um, kind of in the headlines. So we're very proud um, mm. of, of who we are and where we're from. And I certainly was incredibly fortunate to grow up in that part of the world because it's very down to earth and um, very real. And I'd like to think that that's still who, who I am. Now, I, I had a very happy childhood, grew up in a lovely family, um, lots of love. And I was one of those kids that always had my head in a book, mm. um, just always enjoyed reading and learning. And I loved, I loved school um, all the way through high school, um, was toying with, you know, various kinds of careers as you as you do if you're a bit of an over overachieving teenage girl. Yeah. Um, and headed off, headed off to university, and I was sort of doing what we call in New, in New Zealand at that time. It was like a sort of a health sciences first year to take you down into lots of the sort of the medical health science disciplines. And was doing psychology lecture and read um, a book by a um, a chap called Oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist, and he wrote a book called "The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat." I remember now, you know hearing. I remember yeah. hearing about it in school myself. Yeah, and he and it was really it's an extraordinary book, and he writes. He's a he's a, he's a wonderful writer and writes a series of case studies about um, people with very bizarre neurological disorders. And I was utterly utterly captivated by that. And this is back in the early nineties, and um, I remember saying to a friend that. Um, who was doing a lot of the same subjects, and I said, oh, look, I'm so interested in, in this kind of the brain and psychology and the biology of psychology. And he said, oh, well, there's this brand-new degree discipline at another university down come four hours away from where I lived called neuroscience. And hmm. I was like, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. So I went down to that uni and checked it out, and, and it really pulled together the neuroscience component from pharmacology and physiology and anatomy and psychology and psychiatry. And I was like, this... This is this is my thing. So I transferred to that university um, and was one of the first um, cohort to go through and, and gain a degree in, in neuroscience wow. from the university. Loved every second of it, and it's really sort of been the path that I have never ever deviated from since. It's such an incredibly broad, deep, and rich subject. There's no way that you can ever know everything there is to know. So, especially for someone like me, where there's I have just such a deep love of learning. Um, it's a perfect discipline to be in. 
Um, I was incredibly fortunate then to head off. um, I went off traveling around with my friends around Europe with a backpack, as you did back in the early 90s, with (laughs) $100 in my back pocket type of thing. Um, And I ended up, was very fortunate to win a scholarship to Oxford University um, to study my my master's, and then I did my PhD there as well. Um, And when I was there, the research field that I was working in, I was really interested in brain development and in particular, the role of sort of nature versus nurture, although that's quite an old-fashioned way to think about it now. But I was interested in how the experiences that we have um, guide how the brain wires up during development. And now, now we've been more familiar with concepts such as using words like neuroplasticity. Right. But even back then, back at the turn of the century, they weren't necessarily phrases that we used. But that's essentially what I was, I was looking at, was how plastic the brain is during early development and um, and it's interesting for me because that now is a topic that there's such great thirst and interest for in the in the in the wider world so um, when I was in Oxford I met a gorgeous Irishman hmm. and um, we 20 odd years later or something we're, we're married now with a couple of kids and on a bit of a whim back in 2002 we decided to Go and live in Sydney, Australia for a year because we thought it sounded sunny and we could. We were really outdoorsy. We like, you know, great outdoors yeah. and sailing and beaches and yeah. surfing. And that was sort of we, we told his his Irish mother that we were going for a year. <laughs> Two thousand and two, we're still here. Um, wow, wow, and, yeah, and very um, obviously. Where are we now? It's as we're recording this. It's the end of March, twenty twenty. We can't get to the beach as much as we would like. Life is very different for us at this moment in time. But um, we've had a really fantastic. Um, we enjoy living in Sydney a lot, and why we've never left. Yeah. Um, really, in the last kind of ten or twelve years, um, I did about five years research in the universities here in Sydney, carrying on my work looking at plasticity and um, how the brain changes. Um, and then I set up my own business about 12 years ago because I saw a real gap between what we were doing and the work that we were doing in the research lab and what people wanted to use and apply in their lives. And so I've been doing that since really working, sort of taking the, taking the neuroscience, what can we do, what can we understand and, and how can I use that to help people mm-hmm. in some meaningful way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for your book, The Woman's Brain, you mm. you did a lot of research just sort of initially looking at our women's brains different than men's brains. And, you know, there's this whole, what was it? Men are from Mars women, or whatever it is. <laughs> Men are from Mars, women are from Venus or on, like, like we're so different. But are we really biologically or neurologically <laughs> so different? That's a really good question because when I started writing the book, I really um, went into it. Um, having written a piece for um, the ABC here in Australia on menopause and brain fog and and then thinking, wow, instead of chatting with a publisher, talking about menopause and pregnancy and puberty and thinking, wouldn't it be really interesting to write a book about the neurobiology of periods and the pill and pregnancy? And so it was very much a book taking a look at women's health. But as soon as I said I was writing a book on well, I st- if I used the words the female brain instead of women's health, the first question I'd be asked was how different are male and female brains? Or you'd get some bloke saying, oh, can you tell me how to understand my wife? <laughs> 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 
and all of this kind of thing. And it was curious to me because I wasn't writing a book about that. I was writing about puberty and the pill and periods. But anyway, um, I guess, you know, we all quite like this idea that we can kind of put all men over this side of the room and all men, women over that side of the room have kind of a, a pink side and a blue side based on what's inside our skulls. And if we kind of open up our skulls, we could see these pink brains and women and blue brains and men. And we're really captivated by these findings of sex and gender differences, especially when they've got a very seductive brain-based explanation or neurosplaining, as I call it. Mm. But it doesn't turn out that way when we start doing really careful studies, looking at the structure, the gross structure, the kind of the just look at a brain from the outside or zoom in with a microscope and look at the microarchitecture. And then when we start like looking at various thoughts or feelings or behaviors, it's not as easy as you might intuitively think to divide brains into pink and blue at all. And one concept that's come out of a lot of the literature is this idea of a mosaic brain, whereby we've all got so many differences um, in our brains and some women may have a brain that's made up of lots of pink and blue and purple and mauve and violet parts but so might a lot of men and we simply can't say all brains are this way and all brains are that way and instead we need to start asking ourselves what is this particular difference we are curious about exploring mm-hmm. between males and females how different is that difference really when it comes down to it because typically it turns out that the differences are very 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 small and there's a massive overlap and um, and it turns out that brains aren't actually that different at all. Some parts of brains and women are different from men. For example, women have a part of the brain that controls ovulation. Of course, men don't have that part of the brain. But the vast majority of our brains are devoted to interpreting what we see, to processing um, sound and movement and interacting with other people and thinking about solving maths equations if you're at primary school or learning a musical instrument or... Um, patting your dog or cooking a meal or smelling food and enjoying someone else's company, all of these things we all do. Yeah. Um, they're not gender specific. So, and I also think because of the vast majority of the work I did when I was working in the research lab, is taking a look at this concept of plasticity. Um, so much of our brains are shaped by our lives and the experiences that we have and children are born into a gendered world and I know in the US a lot of people are quite fond of having these gender reveal parties oh yeah I kind of think they're a bit ridiculous because they're not you know it's almost like the baby's life is determined before they're born based on whether they're pink or blue Mm -hmm. and every experience that we have particularly through childhood shapes and sculpts our brains um, and teaches that child this is who you are in the world in which you're, you're, you're born into. Because yeah. a plastic brain essentially is built so that it can adapt to the world in which it lives. Mm-hmm. And if children are born up in a very gendered way, and, and that's I'm not saying that's necessarily right or wrong, then, of course, the brain is going to learn to behave in a certain way. Yeah. Um, so much of, of who we are depends on the experiences we have. So it's way more complicated than a male brain's different to female brains. Are all men different to all women? When it comes down to it, well, I mean, mostly we're, we're more similar than different, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think to your point that, that, that you know, if we have been born into a very gendered society from a very young age, we are picking up and modeling and behaving in these ways that, you know, you're 
these are the ways boys behave. These are the ways girls behave. And um, yeah, it just sort of becomes part of who we are. Exactly, exactly. There's a really interesting study I talk about in the book, um, which was, I'm so grateful it was published when it was, it was looking at um, this real, um, and we would see this in adults, particularly in, you know, Western world where, um, we see it everywhere actually it's not just the western we've seen it forever and it's that old Cheryl Sandberg encouraging women to lean in because men are the ones that are more likely to put their hand up put themselves forward be very confident whereas women are far more kind of self-deprecating and less likely to ask for the raise put their hand up in a room and I see this all the time when I talk I do a lot of public speaking mm-hmm. we have Q&A the men always put their hands up first and as soon as you start answering the men's questions the women are less likely to mm-hmm. now that that male self-confidence and belief in themselves starts at quite a young age. So these researchers are interested, when does that begin? Is it, is it a hormonal thing? Do we see it emerge at adolescence? We see it a lot earlier when hormones aren't doing anything. Hmm. So you go into a classroom of um, boys and girls at around age five, so very beginning of primary school or elementary school, as you call it, um, and say, hey, I have a board game that's designed for really clever kids. Who wants to learn how to play? It's a smart kids game. And all the boys will go, me, and all the girls will go, me. But then you go in and talk to the seven and eight-year-olds and say, who wants to play the game for smart kids? The boys go, me. And a lot of the girls go, oh, that's the game for the boys. Mm. Smart, smart kids are the boys. Yeah. Similarly, you could present them with a story um, about, if, uh, you know, we could we, you frame it in terms of, what is important to the kids. So you could say, who is the scientist who's going to save the world from coronavirus or who's going to help stop climate change? Who could grow up to be a scientist like that? And the boys will go, me, and the girls will go, me, when they're about five, get to ages seven and eight. The boys will go, well, I could do that. And the girls will go, well, that's what the boys are going to grow up to do. So they're picking up these messages yeah. The boys can be the ones that can be confident, go forward and put their hands up and the girls kind of defer to them. And they're learning it at a very young age. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it's really important we realise how early these tendencies emerge. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not to say, oh, it's teachers or it's parents, we shouldn't educate children, <laughs> look what they learn. But, you know, they they pick these this stuff up from the experiences that they have and it's... Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's hard to unlearn that as an adult woman. Oh, for sure. Oh, my goodness. For sure. I know that um, I can, I went back to grad school much later, uh, you know, like in my 50s. And I can remember being sub, self conscious about being the woman who is raising her hand. <laughs> like, you're sitting at, well, you're probably sitting in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> probably. That's what you do when you're an adult student. You go back to uni, you sit in the front row and you're enthusiastic. Exactly. <laughs> I had all the questions and then I'm like, I began to get very self-conscious. I'm like, okay. like Men probably don't feel as self-conscious because they haven't learned that what is important is to be polite and demure. And, right. And that's not, that's not an innate thing because we see it emerging in those early childhood years. So I think it's, yeah. Um, it's useful for us to understand that because in that we 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 go well. I learned that behaviour. Yeah, I can learn new behaviour, and isn't that powerful to know that you can be, you can change. Absolutely, yes, and that's the amazing thing. That's that I just love about all this neuroplasticity research that yeah. we can change. Our brains can change, and we can learn to be different. 
But I also found in your book so interesting the research you did and and around our cycles. And I know so many women will that I see in in therapy and in my life, friends, even I experience like it feels as if our cycles control our mental health mm-hmm. sometimes. <laughs> yes. But yes. what did you find in the research around that? This is really, really for me one of the most. This is a this is a real game changer when I was writing the books. It came early on because I kind of went, you know, a neutral childhood puberty, and then I was going to and have the menstrual cycle as and within puberty. And then I was like, I need a whole chapter of its own. So it was early, early on in writing the book. Yeah. Came across some interesting research, and, and I very much went into thinking this is going to be a book about biology and how our hormones. Um, did influence how we think and feel and um, so I thought well but I started taking a look at um, across the menstrual cycle we think oh, well if you're not on the pill or menopausal or pre-pubertal you've got a menstrual cycle yeah. um, happening and so a lot of women you can think of it as a monthly neuroscience experiment and I thought well does it does it influence how we think um, our, our cognitive abilities and I was delighted to find zero support for that notion no it doesn't matter what time of the month it is. We're perfectly able to think and reason and judge and make decisions and, and plan and be strategic, which I'm so fortunate growing up in the part of the world I did and that we've always um, had a lot of um, women in, in positions of power and in politics. And I was like, well, of course we can. I knew that. Right, life, right, right. But, but also um, nice to have it validated by research. Validated by <laughs> But women yes. who have jobs know that, right? We're yes. perfectly capable humans. And then I thought, well, what about emotions? They're different. Because a lot of us grow up with this story, well, yes, we're on this roller coaster of hormones that we can't really get off and they control our emotional life. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I'll look at um, PMS or PMT, that kind of, um, and I was really interested in that kind of moodiness, crankiness this that, that women describe before um, they get their period. Now, I must add that um, I've been on the pill for many years, but when I wasn't on the pill, I never really suffered from PMS. It didn't really, wasn't really kind of part of my personal experience. Mm-hmm. But that aside, I thought, well, it's meant to be very common. So I went and I found a meta-analysis, which if you're familiar or not with um, how research is done, a meta-analysis pulls together um, a lot of research, different research studies. And so there's power in numbers. We can make more certain assumptions based on more data. Mm-hmm. And um, in this study was looking at rates of reported PMS and emotional symptoms in women in different countries in the world fascinating so if you went to France and Switzerland about 10 or 15 percent of women said yes I suffer from PMS jump over the border from France into Spain still in Europe about 50 percent of Spanish women say they suffer from PMS Hmm. varies all the way around the world and you go into some countries and for example Iran in the Middle East about 90 to 95 percent of women there said yes they suffer from PMS Hmm. and I was like well huh isn't that curious because if it's well, hormones don't vary that much, and they certainly don't vary that much between France and Spain, but cultures um, and societies differ greatly. So, what is influencing women to have these different experiences of, of PMS? Mm. So, I started speaking to um, a women's health psychiatrist in New Zealand, who's also called Sarah Sarah Romans, and she thought the same. She I get it. she's obviously seeing a particular subset of women who have serious mental health issues. They're coming to a psychiatrist, but she said they were all coming to me and, and defaulting to their reproductive capacity. I am a woman. I'm ruled by my hormones. 
And she said, I just didn't think that that was the case for them all. And she was familiar with these variations in PMS rates around the world and designed a study called the Mood and Daily Life Study. And so women had kind of an app that popped up on their phone and every day they had to record the daily menstrual cycle, how their, their current emotional status, and they were given a range of positive and negative and neutral emotions to choose from and the same number of each. So the data wasn't skewed to only negative emotions and maybe happy, right. um, which a lot of studies are as if we have 12 negative emotions and one positive. Um, <laughs> how stressed they felt, how socially supported or not, their kind of social status. And um, what was really telling them this was that they were not told it was a study looking at PMS symptoms. Um, hundreds of women in the study, many, many hundreds of cycles gathered and the data was crunched. And it turned out that there were some women whose emotional status was determined by their hormonal status, by the day of the month. But it was a very small number. It was only about one to two in 20 women. Wow. So about five to 10% of women. The rest of the women, day of the cycle didn't have any influence on their emotional status. And this is interesting, but when, when you do a different type of study and you tell the woman, this is a study looking at emotions and PMS, you get a very different mm. a data set. So when you're not priming people's expectations about their health outcomes you see very very different data what is interesting I was talking to Sarah about this on the phone she said it's so interesting what was the key indicators of women's emotional status how stressed they felt was important um, their physical health on that day was important but the most key and the key indicator of their emotional health and well-being was how socially supported they felt did they have someone that they could call on if they needed it? Did they feel loved and cared for and nurtured by someone else? Hmm. And that was an absolute turning point in writing this book because I started to see this pattern emerge when we're talking about girls entering puberty. What was the determinant on their, um, how emotionally traumatic it was? Did they go on to develop anxiety and depression as they went through puberty? It depended on the social context in which they were in. Were they yeah. going through period at the same time as their friends? They were going through much earlier. They were more vulnerable. Boys going through puberty earlier than their friends get bigger, hairier, musclier, taller. They rise in social status. They're protected than the little guys. What is, a, what is one of the greatest determinants of a woman's ex postnatal experience, whether she develops postnatal depression? Mm. It's how socially she's supported she feels. It's the, that old story about who's in the village. Yeah. Um, you know, we look at menopause. Um, obviously, that's a really emotional and difficult time for lots of women. But how socially supported a woman feels, how physically well she is, all of that is as much of an indicator to her experience as her hormonal fluctuations. Mm. And I saw that time and time and time again through the through the book. Um, and every researcher I spoke to said the same thing. I would say, how can we help a woman who's gone through pregnancy? How can we help a little girl um, entering puberty? How can we help someone who's suffering from anxiety and depression? And what would every single researcher, every single specialist in the field, they'd be like, oh, well, it's about the social support. It's about other people. It's about love. It's about connection. Mm, wow. That makes mm -hmm. so much sense. I mean, um, you think about how, well, as you know, going into puberty with no social support, no, you know, whether it's a parent or a sibling or an aunt or whatever, sort of guiding you through mm -hmm. this is like, this is normal. This is what's going to happen. And this Absolutely. is, 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's a time it's, you go through puberty and those of us who've gone through it can remember it very clearly. What I mean, I, I most women can always can very clearly remember the day they, they first got their period. Yeah. It's really embedded in, you, in your memory. Yeah. And your experience of that largely depends on how well prepared you were. And the only way to be prepared is by other people giving you giving you that information. How normal was that for you? And also what was happening in your friendship groups at that time? If you you know, and, and, and it's so normal for young people, boys and girls, to sort of pull away from the family and focus on friends. And that's biologically normal. It's what right. they should what young people should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so that social group depend just just as is, is so vital at that point in time. And if it's you feel different, that mm-hmm. is gonna um, have a, a very powerful outcome on your emotional experience. So when we we tend to focus on hormones, hormones, hormones all the time, and they 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 play a role, but they're not the loudest voice in the crowd. Yeah. Um, every yeah. one of our emotional experiences, and I think that that is such good news because well, again, we can do a lot about a lot of things. We we can't do, you know, if you're a female and you've got a menstrual cycle, that's kind of what you've got. You can take care of your health, but you can't necessarily, unless you're perfectly happy to go on the pill, like I've always been, um, change change your hormonal fluctuations. So we've got so much mm-hmm. um, choice yeah. and agency over our emotional responses. We're not on a roller coaster that we can't get off. And I think that that's, for me, been, was a real, real surprise when I wrote the book that that was what kept coming up time and time again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, I, I think you do say in the book too that there are people that do have, I'm forgetting the letters, but, you know, severe. Um, um, yeah, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, so PMDD, which is a, yes. a severe type of PMS. And that's what I said. And <clears throat> even in the careful studies that were done, for example, with Sarah Romans and the Mood and Daily Life, yeah, um, there were a subset of women who were far more sensitive. Yeah. But most women were not. Yeah. And it's what we see when we look at women around the world. What was the influence on, on that? Is the, is the kind of the, the, the narratives and the storytelling that emerges within a group of women, within a society, within a particular culture. Um, and that, that, is, that, that was a stronger influence on women's PMS symptoms than hormones. It's the stories that we've been, if you've been brought up to expect that you're going to suffer from PMS, perhaps your mother did or your mother was told that she would and you're told well one week a month you're going to feel pretty rubbish and interestingly if you look into all of the feminist literature we see a very very similar um story emerge um in that in that space and that you know pms is just women are given permission to um say what they think and feel for one week a month <laughs> the rest of the three weeks we are keeping keeping ourselves quiet because that's what we've been told we should do interesting um, so it, yeah i think that's that's really interesting and and um, and it's not to say that that hormones don't influence how we feel mm-hmm. but perhaps not as much as we may have been taught and i think that that's quite a powerful message absolutely absolutely and so now I want to shift to, you know, sort of older, you know, well, I'm just talking about myself feeling older, but oh, perimenopause, oh, <laughs> you know, perimenopause, menopause. Yeah. So, I mean, I can recall uh, before, I guess I knew I was in perimenopause, but uh, just really feeling as if like I was pre-dementia. Like I was, I, I, can, I can remember calling my sister who's older than me and saying like, 
I'm not sure what's happening. Like I, well, I was also a little depressed and uh, there was a lot going on. And she had some friends who were older and she's like, I think this is what's happening for you. You know, this is part of the menopausal experience. And I've had clients share that with me as well. And so do hormones, do the, are changing hormonal uh, fluctuations impact our cognitive stuff or how we're feeling in the world? That's really interesting because that was what was kind of the, the spark for writing this book was I wrote an article on, menopause perimenopause and brain fog and that women start many women do experience kind of they become fuzzy and forgetful and moody and think oh that's the first signs of alzheimer's and dementia and get very very fearful about that yeah um, it's a very very common experience and i, I have a, um, a friend um, who i went uh, studied with in oxford who is an alzheimer's disease researcher and the, the same thing happened to her she became so concerned that she was experiencing Alzheimer's symptoms and she's an expert in the field she went to her GP and the GP said I think it might be perimenopause and and what turns out what is happening in perimenopause is we have this um these huge surges and kind of a real bumpy ride of hormones where the kind of it's almost like our ovaries are trying to get those those last bit of the conversation going with the brain (laughs) and we know estrogen there are estrogen receptors in our brain our ovaries produce estrogen um usually TikToks along quite regularly most of our lives and then we get to perimenopause and it becomes um, it does fluctuate wildly and it turns out it's that fluctuation um, Mm. that has an effect now again I was like well is it does the fluctuation have a direct effect on some of the symptoms women experience Um, and there's a real chicken and egg scenario in here because the by far and away the most common symptom that women experience in the in the perimenopause and of course this is the the years leading up to your final period Mm -hmm. um could be you know four five six eight years and i'm 45 so i'm right in the middle of it Mm -hmm. um the most common symptom is hot flashes you know getting all hot and sweaty or or night sweats in particular when we experience night sweats or hot flashes at night it disrupts our sleep it wakes us up completely or it brings us out of deep sleep and it may be that it is the sleep disruption that is causing a lot of the other issues. When you're not getting a good full night's sleep, you're far more, um, you, f- you feel far less control over your emotions. Maybe that leads to, your, your, you know, women at, at our age, in our late 40s, you know, we've got teenage kids, we've got aging parents. Right now, we've got this global pandemic. Yeah. Um, we're often at the peak of our careers. We've got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting good sleep, because perhaps you're having hot flashes at night perhaps that's what's causing a lot of problems so it's a real chicken and egg scenario we don't really understand what's causing what like kind of where in the line mm-hmm. these things are, are, are happening but we know the hot flash is definitely directly attributable to the fluctuating hormones because if you um, treat women with hrt or myself i went back on um, the oral contraceptive pill because i was having hot flashes at night not during yeah. the day but I like last winter I was boiling hot and I was sweating and I'd kick the covers off and fall back asleep and then I'd wake up and I was freezing cold for the winter <laughs> and the covers on. And I this went on for a few months and I was like, I can't, I can't be perimenopausal. But I went and saw my OBGYN and she was like, Well, I think you are. And she mm. said, How about you go back on the oral contraceptive pill? Because you're still getting your periods every right. month. Right. And I was like, Okay, fine. And and what that does. And lots of women don't feel comfortable with this, but I certainly did it. Kind of flatlines that fluctuation of hormones. It gives you lots of estrogen, 
-hmm. um and within a month I was back to sleeping I've always been the world's best sleeper sleeping all night again not waking up sweating um my skin was amazing and my hairdresser said to me the other day she said there's something about your hair that's changed in the last year it's much thicker because I've always had quite fine hair she said your hair is much thicker so that's probably the effects of of, um estrogen and the pill for me yeah um so, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying this is not my prescription. I'm not a doctor. I'm just talking about my personal experience here. Um, but it gave me a bit of um, control back. Lots of women feel very fearful about taking um, hormone replacements, whether it be the pill if you're perimenopausal or HRT, perhaps yeah. a bit further down the track, because there's a great deal of fear around that. Oh. But certainly we know if your symptoms are hot flashes, we understand a little bit about the neurobiology of that too. Um, so there's a region in your brain called the hypothalamus, which controls lots of things, body temperature being one. And when estrogen levels start declining, it's like a thermostat. It gets a bit narrower. So the top temperature goes down, the bottom temperature goes up, and you only need a much smaller shift in body temperature to suddenly feel like you're incredibly hot. After you introduce estrogen back into the system, if you're still perimenopausal, there are no health risks. Um, So long as you don't have a history of breast cancer and whatnot, that's something every woman has to manage with their own healthcare provider. But if you introduce estrogen back um, with HRT or perhaps the oral contraceptive pill, the thermostat kind of goes back to its original setting Hmm. and you don't get as hot again. Wow. Um, so we understand the neurobiology of that quite well now. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing how, I don't know, just how easily things can sort of get disrupted in our, through hormones and changing and, um, yeah, just to change our internal body temperature is just pretty crazy. Oh, for sure. For sure. But I mean, I think um, certainly for me, I felt very well educated on this subject. Um, There's a lot of fear around HRT that came from the studies that were done kind of back at the turn of the century, 2002, 2003, the women's health studies came out. Oh, I remember. It was all like... Everyone kind of went off HRT globally because... Um, a lot of large studies have been done looking at, at women taking HRT and it looked like a lot of diseases increased cancers and heart disease, et cetera. Um, and so the studies were stopped and people became very, very fearful about HRT almost overnight. <clears throat> and it's really interesting now, those studies have been looked at in a great deal of more detail. And a lot of women were entering these studies, about half of the women in the studies were um, put on HRT when they were in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s, so 10, 20, even 30 years after they had gone through menopause. And it, and it was those subset of women who had estrogen reintroduced back into their system, sometimes decades after they'd weaned off it, those were the women that showed the increased risk of these various health issues. Oh. Women who were put on HRT or, or, or whatever medication it was for their symptoms if they were symptomatic and they started taking it when they were symptomatic perimenopausal Mm -hmm. or within a year or two of the menopause we don't see the same increased risk um, in in those women and it was the older ladies who skewed the data they should never have been put on it and that has since been validated quite well in a lot of animal studies you can go on and validate a lot of this we can look at you know menopausal animals in the lab menopausal mice Hmm. And we see when you reintroduce estrogen into a system, 
that's when it causes the damage. So there was a lot of fear back then, rightly so at that point, because we didn't understand the data well enough. And now we've looked back on that. Um, there's a generation of women who've been scared off HRT. Um, but what I certainly see now is amongst my group of friends who are all in our mid, mid late 40s, certainly here in Australia at least, those messages are through and women are feeling much more comfortable. There's not the fear that the medical profession is really educated on all of this data now. And, um, yeah. we, you know, we've got options now if we so choose, which is um, a really positive thing. It really is. It really is. Because I, I mean, I definitely got hot flashes and, but it didn't, I mean, maybe it was disrupting my life more than I realized, but I, I, it, it was, it was okay. But I have a, a few friends who it, it's, yeah, it stops them from sleeping. It's making them, mm. yeah. And so they've been able to go on HRT and really it yeah. changed their lives. It changed lives. It yeah. does. It does change lives. One researcher I said to her, he said, oh, I have women who are going through menopause giving up work. He said, but I have cancer patients who carry on working. Um, and, you know, gosh, yeah. it's nice to have some options. So you're like, right. right now, <laughs> there's enough disruption going on. So I think whatever we can manage, yes. we, sh- we, should, we should manage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I want to just say that I loved, you know, I think you had one section about menopause and like, why do we as humans have this long life after no longer being able to birth children and be reproductive? And you talk about the orca whales and... I know, that's a beautiful um, idea, isn't it? It is, it is. Will you talk a little bit about that and what... what, what Yeah, well, it... Yeah, I mean, it's this lovely um, notion that I came across. It's like in almost every um, mammal in the animal kingdom, and we like to look to the animal kingdom to see, because we are part of the animal kingdom too, um, yeah. and as I, I, I often say, the animal kingdom doesn't read books on what to expect when they're expecting, and as it turns out, that's a pretty powerful <laughs> indicator of, um, but, you know, why why we looked at all of the rest of the animal kingdom, but apart from humans and um a couple of species of whale, <laughs> once you go through menopause, you, you die pretty much straight away. So you end up, your, your reproductive years are kind of over and then that's it for you because you're kind of dispensable. Right. Um, but what is it about humans and, and orca whales? And I think it's also pilot whales, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, why, you know, why do we kind of carry on living? And there's this lovely notion, um, and it's been studied in these whale populations that it's this kind of like this grandmother theory or this wise matriarch theory that um, having a, an, a, a woman um, with wisdom that she's gathered up over years of life experience who's no longer fertile, so she's not, her time is not taken up with raising children, yeah. but she has wisdom to part and part to the community in which she lives, then that promotes survival within that community of the of the young people coming through. Um, in the whale populations, we would see that the wise well, the wise menopausal matriarch, well, she's the one that knows where to find food when times are tough. Mm. And the pods that have those wise postmenopausal matriarchs are, are healthier and survive mm. um, for longer. Um, and you know, there's more survival of the young. They're able to find food. Um, so it's a you know, it's a it, whether or not we can it's just kind of coincidence, but there no, is this. But I like that. That, that we we postmenopausal women, um, you know, we have knowledge and experience that yeah. we've we've built up over many years, and when we're not no longer raising our children, 
um, we can move on to a really new um, role in society. And gosh, there's a need for warmth and wisdom and empathy and kindness um, yes. and leadership yes. right now. Men can do that, but they don't seem to be doing that great a job, a lot of them. <laughs> um, but there's, there's this, yeah. you know, there's all, all these wonderful women out there I know. Mm -hmm. um, and I often think about um, if people know Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, gosh, she's just... Mm -hmm. um, just epitomizes warmth and kindness and clean, clear, warm, nurturing leadership. Yeah. Um, and I know so many women like her, but we just don't have that confidence to put up our hands and lead. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and this gosh, we're we're all missing out. I know. Um, I know. By women not having the confidence to do what someone like Jacinda does, when we're all we've got that ability, we yes. just need we just need to step up a bit. Well, and the hard part here, especially in this, our, my country, the United States, like the women that do rise to the top tend to be the women who have learned to sort of do politics or leadership in a very male way, because that's how they got, you know, they are confident, they are, and then they're then shamed and, mm. you know, they're the bitch, they're the whatever. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, tough, it's, a, it's a it's a terrible thing. Yeah, but then, you know, people thing. also seem to weirdly then have such great reverence for someone like the Queen. Right, um, right. You know, the Crown is one of the, like the top shows to watch on Netflix, and people right. just think, you know, right. and they're perfectly happy to look to someone like the Queen with reverence and respect. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so there are ways that women can lead. Um, I think. I believe um, for sure. We, Absolutely. We just don't, some, sometimes we just don't seem to think that they can, but I think also we need to just, um, you know, there's lots of ways that we can do that. That's mm -hmm. not in politics. It's not just becoming president or prime minister. Right. Um, there's lots of ways that we can all do that within our own communities. And that's kind of where you've got to start, I think. I think so too. So if you wanted the listeners of the podcast to take away something, what would be from your book? What would that if there's oh, a nugget. Look, um, definitely this this idea, like if I had to give a prescription, it would be a social prescription. Um, and it didn't matter whether it's, you know, a newborn baby, what does it need more than anything? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little kid starting school, young people, you know, girl getting her period for the first time or going, you know, going through those teenage years, new mums, you know, just women in midlife who are kind of confused older women, people in aged care, what, do, what does everyone need? And it is it's that social prescription. And that is one of the, and we have very clear data, that is one of the most powerful determinants mm -hmm. of health, well-being, yeah. emotional stability, happiness, what makes life matter. And when you look back across your life course, what are the things that might mean the most? And gosh, isn't the world learning that now? What matters more than anything is, is the people. Yeah. Um, people can't, we're being told we should socially isolate. We're really, we're just being asked to physically distance. Yes. not to become lonely and not to turn away from each other. And what is everyone struggling with more than anything is being told you can't be with other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, um, is, is to remember that. And especially right now, there's so much focus on this, these words social isolation and we need to think well, it's more about physical distancing. And we're, we're quite fortunate that this has happened in a way in the internet era where we can stay connected. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. I grew up in New Zealand. My husband grew up in Ireland Neither of our families live in the country we live in. So for years, we have 
facilitated grandparent-grandchildren relationships via Skype and FaceTime and email. I talk to my mum on FaceTime most days. So Mm -hmm. I don't feel disconnected from her because I've fostered that connection using a different way. And I think it's about feeling that you are connected with people that is important. We have to, I think, right now remember that. Yeah. Physically distant but stay emotionally, socially connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Sarah, how do people find you if they want to know more about you and your work? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm on social media. I can, I've had my moments of being active on social media and other times when I take care of myself and duck away. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm, I'm, I play around a bit on Instagram. So I, on Instagram, I'm Sarah Marie Mackay. I'm sure you'll provide, hopefully you'll provide the link. I will. I will provide all Marie the links. To yeah. um, I have a website um, which is actually um, going through a bit of a revamp at the moment, but at the moment people can find it at yourbrainhealth.com.au. And if they go to yourbrainhealth.com.au forward slash toolkit, um, there is a, um, a a brain health toolkit that they can download, which contains some of my you know, handpicked tools and strategies oh, that cool. will give people a bit of an insight into the world of brain science, but how they can use um, neuroscience in their lives um, and in the work that they do as well. Cool. Well, I will definitely provide all those links in the show notes and um, I hope people will check them out. Yeah, I hope so too. And um, I hope just everyone, yeah, stays connected, even though, you know, my boys are quite fond of saying we're all in this together, but separately. (laughs) There you go. Um, And, you know, um, we've got to get back to basics. Yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Sleep's a superpower, it passes the time. Sleep, try and get some exercise in and just keep loving those around us. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate you taking the time all the way across the world from me. And it was really great to connect. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting. Wow, so much good information to take away from that conversation. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with uh, Dr. McKay, Sarah McKay. I really enjoyed her down-to-earth way of explaining brain science, women's health, women's mental health in terms of our hormonal fluctuations and changes from puberty, puberty on through menopause. Well, I hope you this week will take into account What are the messages you're getting from society about your ability to lead or to be emotionally stable when you're having your, during your cycle or what it means to be in menopause or perimenopause societally? Yeah, just think about that. And I hope that all of you are healthy and staying safe and finding some comfort and connection in this time of uncertainty. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your loved ones. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior.
Thanks for listening and subscribing to the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com. Thank you.